well with all the all the babies in the church that we have been blessed with i thought I should probably preach a sermon on infant baptism but i also warned you in the title this morning you you know what i'm going to be preaching on tonight so no uh, baptist coming tonight being all upset oh you got me brother uh, no i told you it was in the bulletin infant baptism in the gospel so uh, you still have time to, to go and retain your bad theology, but I suggest you stay. Um, so we're going to be looking at infant baptism and the gospel, and uh, I trust that even if you do still walk away uh, disagreeing, which is, uh, which is obviously your right to do, there's going to be a lot in here that you'll still be able to agree with. That is my hope. Uh, so we're going to be reading from Psalm 8, which I think we're singing last in our final hymn. Psalm 8, verses 1 to 2. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants... You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words to us, your promises, which are yes and amen in Christ, for how you treat us, for how you not only treat us, but how you protect us as a good father. And so we ask that you'll protect us from the evil one, and allow the Spirit of holiness to do His work in our midst. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the uh, topics that I have found uh, to be most, uh, shall we say, vibrant in terms of debates, uh, very much uh, focuses on the a relationship of children born to believing parents and the church. And historically, uh, I know we have terms that we use today. We, we refer to people who are Baptists, but of course, as Presbyterians, we are Baptists as well. We baptize people. Um, we are for baptism. We are very much for baptism which is why historically it, it wasn't so much that you were called a Baptist, but you were called an anti-Pedobaptist. And I, I like that long word. You are an anti-Pedobaptist. Uh, it sounds like a nasty term to call someone, but uh, it does get at the issue because if you are for baptizing believers, as we are as Presbyterians, um, what does that make of those who are against baptizing babies? And as we uh, navigate this, there's uh, a sense in which, of course, we have to establish some introductory points, and there could be many. Uh, As you know, in our church here at Faith Vancouver, we welcome people into membership who uh, may call themselves Baptists. Uh, We do not think, as far as our theology is to be understood, that the gates of the church doors should be narrower than the gates of the heavenly doors. So you think of the gates of the heavenly doors, who is welcomed into the kingdom, and then you think of the church on earth should reflect 
that basic premise. It is what we call uh, Reformed Catholicity. Reformed Catholicity is a way in which we emphasize our distinctives, but we try to remain as Catholic, that is, embracing as possible of all Christians. So uh, there are Reformed churches, however, and there are Baptist churches and many other types of churches that do narrow their terms of membership. There are some where you have to uh, hold to a certain type of eschatology to be a member in that church. There are others where you cannot be a paedo-baptist in order to be a member in their church, or you have to have been baptized in a certain way to be a member in that church. Or there are some Reformed churches where you must hold to the confession, not just the teachers, but also those who are in the church have to hold to the confession. Here at Faith Vancouver, and I say this knowing that many of you know this, but it bears repeating, we affirm again that if you are a Christian, and what constitutes a Christian is one who has a true faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we have those five questions that we ask. If you are a Christian, you should be allowed to be part of a local body. Notwithstanding our generosity in terms of membership, and it is generous, there is a sense in which we are also not ashamed of our distinctives. And from time to time, we will preach on our distinctives. You will not probably get from me a 20-part series lauding the joys of infant baptism so that for half a year, you're going to hear you know, this case put forward. I know some who do that, by the way. I will not be doing that, but that does not mean we will not take time here and there to uh, reaffirm things that we do believe in and that we believe are important. Now, I hope that is a generous enough and uh, sufficient uh, introduction to the matter at hand. What I want to focus on tonight, and I could focus on, uh, as I said, many different issues, is the way in which infant baptism does reveal certain gospel truths. So that even if you were to come away and say, I'm not convinced, thank you for that thoughtful message, uh, but I'm not uh, convinced, you should be able to be re-enlightened, so to speak, of various gospel truths that you dearly love and that we should all be able to love. So I do not think anyone should necessarily be at a loss tonight, even if they disagree with the final conclusion. So I'm attempting to at least find some common ground where I can. But I do believe that this is a faithful understanding of God's Word. One of my Facebook friends uh, had this quote this week. You'll forgive me for doing my sermon prep on Facebook, but uh, I'll grab from anywhere and anywhere that I can. Uh, When you're in the ministry at one church for so long, you are getting material any way you can find it. And uh, this gentleman uh, gave a quote from the great Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, who once said, Give a man an open Bible, an open mind, a conscience in good working order, and he will have a hard time to keep him from being a Baptist. And I thought, oh, bless you. And... uh, I will confess, I did do the laughing emoji. He had so many likes and loves from his Baptists, I just did the laughing emoji. 
uh, because I guess that means I am a man with an open Bible and a closed mind and a conscience in not very good working order because I am not a Baptist. Um, now, of course, people feel very strongly about these matters. And what I want to do is establish four basic points for you tonight to consider why baptism, namely infant baptism, reveals certain things about the gospel. The first point is that God always takes the initiative. We believe that in terms of our broader doctrine of salvation. We do not believe that salvation is up to us and we have to do certain things in order to be saved. We believe that salvation is of the Lord. That God takes the initiative. That God establishes covenants. God establishes promises. God took the initiative in the Garden of Eden. God took the initiative with Adam and Eve after in Genesis 3.15 with His promise, with Noah, with Abraham, and so on. God is an initiating God. And in Psalm 8, we read of how David is magnifying the Lord, talking about the majesty of His name in all the earth, that His glory has been set in the heavens. And then, after talking about the power, the majesty, the glory of God, how do we know that God is glorious? How do we know of God's majesty? How do we know who God is? Well, we know God is God because even infants praise God. Even infants can praise God. And some of you in your translation in verse 2, it will read, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have ordained praise. And it's a Hebrew word which can uh, mean that or establish strength. The idea behind worship and praise is that of strength. That God is giving you strength because you are worshiping Him. When you are for the Lord, it is in the strength of the Lord. And so it's not meant to be one or the other, but it is meant to tell us that God is the one who ordains this praise, this strength. He's the one who enables it to take place. Did John the Baptist in his mother's womb think one day, you know what, I'm just going to rejoice at the news of Jesus Christ. No, he rejoiced at the news of Jesus Christ in his mother's womb because God had ordained that strength that enabled him to rejoice in his mother's womb. Of course babies in and of themselves would not rejoice in their mother's womb over the gospel being preached outside of the mother. But if God is who He says He is, if He's the God of majesty, the God of power, the God who will have His creatures worship Him, why should we not believe that God is able to ordain strength, praise, glory from the lips of not just babies, but infants, Sometimes in the Hebrew language you can read of a young child, uh, a young man, Na'ar, and you can say, well, this could be a teenager and so on. But here the psalm is being very careful to establish that we're talking not just about young men, babies, who could be 13, but infants. That God from the beginning establishes praise. Isn't it interesting, uh, those of you who... Uh, have little babies, and uh, uh, there's this one baby in the church, uh, Ferd's got her right now, and uh, 
it's like some kids, you could just give them to anyone and they just go, right? And they're just happy and no problem. And they just seem very low maintenance uh, at this point in time, of course. But there's something when they see their mom or their dad or their grandpa or grandmother where all of a sudden they turn around and they see and their arms just naturally go out. It's that instinct about a baby knowing who its mother is, who its father is, who its grandmother and grandfather. There's something unique about that relationship. You don't find that that would be the case if I were to, the baby was in Ferd's arms and was looking at me and just started going like that. That'd be a bit weird. And it's not meant to be that way. It really isn't. There's something in the way God has ordained the relationships among parents and their children where there's an instinct in the child to know its mother, to know its father. And God from the beginning establishes praise, establishes strength. He takes the initiative. Ephesians is a, a great uh, book. I think we would all admit that. And a lot of parents, they, they love it when they have a child and they get to Ephesians chapter 6 and they teach them Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. My children know this verse. They don't always obey it, but they know it. And I love it. It's clear. It puts me in command. And it seeks a good blessing for me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That verse did not drop out of heaven in the abstract. It didn't come down like a fortune cookie that they open at dinner and go, oh, I have to obey my parents in the Lord. That verse comes in the context of the rest of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, and 5. Before you get to chapter 6. And guess what? If you're going to be writing to children to obey in the Lord, you have to then take those words in the Lord and ask, what does that mean in the rest of the book of Ephesians? And lo and behold, to obey your parents in the Lord, in the context of the covenant community, in union with Christ, means that God has taken the initiative with children. He doesn't say, children, obey your parents, for this is right, as though it was a natural law principle that Muslim children could say, yes, that's right. Hindu children could say, yes, that's right. Atheist children could say, yes, that's right. No, it comes couched in the language of union with Christ. It's almost as though there's no stronger indicative that you could give to a child about why they should obey their parents than to tell them, you are in the Lord. That is why you should obey. You're not out of the Lord. You're not a pagan. You are a child of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We have this doctrine where the only way in which to please God is to do so by faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. And in Colossians chapter 3, there's a slightly different spin upon Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So Ephesians establishes the ground for why they should obey their parents, but Colossians talks about the reward for why they should obey their parents. It pleases God. 
In other words, children should be told not only that they're in the Lord, and that is why they should obey their parents, but that when they obey their parents, they are actually pleasing God. You cannot please God apart from faith. There is an assumption here when Paul writes in Colossians that these children are doing so in the context of the covenant community. Otherwise, there's no way to make sense of what he's writing. So God takes the initiative is the first point. And the initiative in salvation is wonderfully reflected in the way in which children are treated in the new covenant community. I could have gone to the Old Testament, but you would have said, oh, the dark, shadowy Old Testament. It's been done away with, and now we have the glories of the new covenant. This is all new covenant. Second point. God only wants little children in His kingdom. So, and I regret how infuriating this can be, the only real baptisms are infant baptisms. Infant baptism is a picture of the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 10, our Lord is speaking and uh, remember, they were bringing, the various people were bringing, these were covenant people, bringing children to Him that He might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, remember, this is on the precipice of the New Covenant era, a time when Jewish people were completely fixated upon the coming of the Messiah. And here they are bringing their children to be blessed by the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? The disciples are absolutely correct because in the New Covenant, it's not going to be about children anymore, but about faith, about adults entering the kingdom. You see, He doesn't even hint that that is a reality. Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them. These are the children that are being brought to our Lord. And they were very little children. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God was about to change so dramatically so that little children would no longer be part of the kingdom of God, this would be very odd for Christ to say right before that change that they belong to the kingdom of God. Now let me ask you a question. You're a mother. You bring your child to Jesus. The disciples rebuke you. Stay away from Him. He's got more important business to do. Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, for to such as this one, this little child that you've brought to Me belongs the kingdom of God. And you say, oh, this is wonderful. And then Jesus dies and is raised and Peter starts preaching and Peter has to say, you remember what Jesus says? Well, that was only true for a few more years. A few more months. You see, Jesus is establishing something that has always been true concerning the children of believers. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Infant baptism is a picture of the gospel insofar as you are all meant to be infants in the way you receive the gospel. You're all meant to be completely dependent upon God. You all need to give up your rights and say, I'm buying into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And He took them in His arms. So, Juan Carlos, 
a big boy. I don't just see uh, me later, Juan Carlos coming into my arms and saying, you know, that would just, he's too big. Estelle, yeah, I can take in my arms, but not Juan Carlos. He took them in his arms, little children, and blessed them. And what was that blessing? Just a sort of like, bless you, bless you. Or was there something objective in that blessing? Was there something whereby when the blessing was offered, there was something that Christ was saying about these children that was different than Egyptian children, than Phoenician children, than children from faraway lands who did not know the covenant? Or was this just a blessing that was just really meaningless but a nice thing to do? The blessings that you find in the Scriptures, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, those are real, objective, covenantal blessings. So God only wants little children in His kingdom, and infant baptism is a picture of that. Not just of God taking the initiative, but God taking the initiative with little children. Thirdly, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. And infant baptism is a picture of this. Now that's probably a, a bit of a debate. J.I. Packer does make that point in his book. You've probably never heard of it. It's called Knowing God. And in that book, he talks about adoption being the highest privilege of the gospel. And Paul talks about adoption in many places, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Adoption is... A glorious, glorious reality when you think about it. A child has, hopefully, the intention is, the child has been delivered from what is often a tragic situation into what we hope is a favorable situation. Uh, my father was adopted. Uh, I understand how it has influenced his psyche. Some of you understand adoption. You've either been adopted or will adopt or have adopted the point is, it is meant to deliver someone from an unfortunate or regrettable situation or a difficult situation into a favorable situation. Baptism delivers us from the realm of the darkness of this world into the household of God where we are sons and daughters. When a child is baptized, they are being brought into a family they are being brought into the family of God and it is an objective fact. They are now part of a family. They are not outsiders. They don't have uh, a little place where those under 13 years of age are to go out because they can't sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you know what else that hymn has in it? that so many sing that don't really believe what they're singing? Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. They have the right to sing that as much as we do. They are part of 
the family, the adoptive family of God. And adoption is not an end in and of itself. A child can be brought into a family and the mother and father who've adopted the child don't say, when you're ready for me to be your father and mother, it may come in 10 years or in 15 years, I'll start treating you like a son or a daughter. But I'm just going to treat you like some human being and when that time happens, maybe it will, I'll start to treat you like a son or treat you like a daughter. No. Most people, the goal of adoption is when that child which can sometimes be very young or maybe not, is brought into this situation, the parents instinctively seek to treat that child like one as their own. And that is what is meant to happen with children in the family of God. I know you've been itching to hear from the Book of Church Order tonight. It does have some very good things to say, by the way. You just have to be... uh, willing to to read through and it says children by baptism are solemnly received into the bosom of the visible church and they are distinguished from the world baptism is separating them from the world and its chaos and its misery and its darkness and its god-hating philosophy and everything that the world stands for they are not of the world anymore they're brought into the family of god and them that are without and united with believers. So, in other words, they are brought into the church. They are distinguished from the world and they are distinguished from those who are without God and without hope. And they are united with believers. And all who are baptized in the name of Christ do renounce by their baptism to fight against the world, the devil, and the flesh. They are Christians, and they are federally holy before baptism, and therefore they are to be baptized. They are part of the family of God. So the great reality of adoption is actually expressed wondrously in a child being baptized. It's a great picture of adoption. It's a great picture of God taking the initiative in salvation. And it's a great picture of the kingdom of God which belongs to little children. Fourthly, God has always established His covenant with families. We read of Abraham. We read of Noah. Which of Noah's sons were brought onto the ark? All of them. Because God saves families. Did all of Noah's sons eventually prove to be faithful? No, but they all were brought onto the ark. And the flood was a baptism. Peter talks about how the flood was a baptism. And the wicked were killed, but the righteous passed through the waters of baptism. An infant baptism is a picture of how God establishes covenants with His people. In Acts chapter 2, verse 39 Peter's preaching. And you have to remember, Peter's preaching as a Jew. He's preaching as a Jew to Jewish people. So when they hear this, you have to understand how they would have understood this. And if you were trying to convince them that little children were no longer part of the kingdom of God, this would be a very confusing thing to say in a sermon to them. If you were saying, hang on now, children no longer belong to the church, they're no longer part of the kingdom of God, they are pagans, they are aliens, they're strangers, they have no hope and they're without God until they repent, and we can see that their repentance is real, 
it would be very strange to say, for the promise is for you and your children. Why not just say this promise is for you? But it is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And what's so interesting about that language there is when you read Genesis chapter 17 and the promise made to Abraham, it's almost identical. This promise is to you, Abraham, and to your children, Abraham, and all who are far off. Many nations, Abraham, as many as the Lord God will call. This is shorthand for Genesis 17. In other words... This is how God works with His covenant promises. He deals with families. Did Isaac possess any advantage by being circumcised? His father believed he was circumcised. It was a sign of God's righteousness, as we're told in Romans 4.11. A God who is faithful to His promises. Abraham believes. He received circumcision. That all makes sense, right? Because he believed. So why does Isaac receive the exact same sign of God's covenant faithfulness, his righteousness? Because God deals with families. We believe that God was good to Abraham, not just terminating upon Abraham, but God's salvation is so great a salvation that God is good to Abraham and to his children. Because He is a covenantal God. There are two types of children described in the Bible. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. There is no third group of children that I read of anywhere. And these children of God, children of the promise, children of the covenant, are to grow up in that context. And they are to believe as they receive the sign, which in the new covenant is the sign of baptism. They are to grow up into that sign, believing those promises, repenting daily, being forgiven daily. There is an interesting scenario why this is important. You, You... catch one of your children uh, sneaking a candy bar at the age of three. Uh, Whether this scenario happened or not is not important. You catch them sneaking a candy bar and you say to the little child, uh, Matthew, let's call him, uh, you mustn't take candy. You stole it. We're going to go into your bedroom now and give you a correction. And you go into the room and you explain, Matthew, you can't be stealing candy. And let's just say another child is under the bed and goes, candy? And you look under and he is also eating a candy, but he was sneaking under the bed eating the candy. We call him Thomas. Now to keep myself from dying in laughter because here I am trying to rebuke Matthew for taking a candy and Thomas has already snitched the candy, gone under the bed and tried to, you know, get away with it. Now I say to them both, listen lads, you can't be stealing candies. Those are mine to begin with and uh, you have to ask before you steal the candy. And they say hypothetically, uh, okay, dad, I'm sorry. I says, well, what do we need to do? Well, you need to 
ask for forgiveness. Who do they need to ask forgiveness from? They need to ask forgiveness primarily from God. And so they ask for forgiveness from God. And then after they've asked for forgiveness from God, I say to them, Matthew and Thomas, I'm so thankful that you've asked for forgiveness from God. Hopefully, when you're about 14 or 15, we can see whether you were really forgiven. But we have to hold on because we can't be sure right now. Do you see the absurdity of that? We don't know the heart. We don't. Nobody knows. I don't even know the heart of a 25-year-old who comes in and has all the right things to say. What do I know is that if somebody says, please forgive me or prays for forgiveness, they ought to receive the assurance that they've been forgiven. And we do that. Now, if you can receive the assurance that you've been forgiven for stealing the candy, how can you not receive the outward sign that reflects that reality that you've just confessed to and received? Yes, you can receive forgiveness for your sins, but no, you can't receive the sign that shows what that reality is. The point is, they are to repent and be forgiven and be assured that they are forgiven because they are living out the reality of what their baptism means. In other words, baptism is not a hindrance to repentance. It is actually the ground for how we can repent and that always becomes the big issue. Ah, but what about repentance? What about faith? And I'm saying precisely. It establishes the need for daily repentance, for faith, and to know that you are forgiven when you ask. And it's a wonderful picture of that. So why do we baptize? We baptize our children because we want them to grow up into their baptism, to have a sign from which they can look to by faith as they grow up into maturity and believe. Now I'll say one final point since we have three minutes left. Three and a half actually. Uh, infant baptism doesn't make any sense if and let me use an illustration. I like to coach soccer. Imagine I like to coach soccer so much that tonight I go home and I walk down to the local field at Adams Road and I just start giving it on the sideline. Come on, where are you? Start running back. Why are you so lazy? There's no players out there. There's no referee. There's no ball. And I'm running up and down the sideline like, wow, Mark should not be preaching this much. He's gone completely nuts. He's coaching with no one on the field, no referees, and he's up, running up and down, and he's actually been red-carded somehow. Just baptizing a baby is like me going down to the field tonight and coaching a bunch of players that don't exist without a referee, without fans, without a ball. You don't just baptize. Baptism only is significant in the context where everything else is working together, where there is mutual instruction, where there is faith, where there's repentance, where there's teaching, where there's prayer by others, where there's worship in the church. You don't just go around throwing water on people and thinking that does anything. That is like a crazy coach on his own coaching a non-existent game. Infant baptism is only valuable to the extent that the realities that we're talking about are being implemented daily. 
so that a child is aware daily that they belong to God, that they have obligations to God, and they're to live out their faith in the context of the visible church where they go to worship God. And so, infant baptism is a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing when it is practiced in the context of the local visible church where people are praying with our children and for our children and our children are responding to that covenantal context in faith. And so God is a God of families. He loves His people so much that the thing on earth most dearest to us is our children and God knows that because of how He's constituted us and our families And so He takes that initiative on our behalf so that we can raise our children in the Lord, but for the Lord and for His glory. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank You for Your promises, which are yes and amen in Christ. And whether a child who's three or whether a child who is 53, so to speak, We pray that living as children in your kingdom will be living as those who have been brought out of a tragic situation, out of service to the devil, out of darkness, into the light, in service of our Father. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.